Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. Once again this week, we have the honor and the privilege of having an expert in toxicities with us. Dr. Howard Horowitz has joined us and joined the podcast for the last couple of weeks. And once again this week, we spoke a lot about lead in the first week of this new series. Then we spoke about uh, plasticizers and some of the effect that they have. This week, we're going to talk about something that's probably in most people's homes. Nail polish remover, acetone, and the wonderful effects it has on all the other parts of your body that have nothing to do with your nails. So there, without any further addition, ouch, go for it, Chuck. You know, before we start this, uh, when I talk about this in my classes, I ask my students if any of them are wearing nail polish, and a number of hands go up, mostly females, some some males, and um, and then I ask them, and how do you change it? How do you remove it? And of course, they all use acetone. They all use nail polish remover. Even though there are alternatives, they all still use it. And actually, there's some acetone in nail polish itself as well. So they, they all use this. And then I proceed with the lecture, and the faces slowly go down <laughs> and then they start looking at their <laughs> nails <laughs> oh boy so if there's one thing that we're doing uh in terms of impacting upon undergrads it's um we're uh, chipping away <laughs> at nail polish all right all right so <clears throat> acetone a colorless liquid with a distinct smell and taste is a volatile organic compound. We call those VOCs. It's associated with paint sludge. It evaporates easily, is flammable, and dissolves in water. It is used in production of plastics and other chemicals, as well as a solvent to dissolve other substances. While it occurs naturally in plants, forest fires, and as a byproduct in the breakdown of body fat, industrial processing and waste contributes more acetone to the environment than do the natural processes. Acetone released to air takes about 20 days to break down from sunlight. It moves into water and soil and can move by means of evaporation to the air all over again. It does not bind to soil or build up in animal fat. Most people are familiar with the smell of acetone from nail polish and nail polish remover, although some household chemicals and paints also contain acetone. Exposure at skin surface to liquid acetone offers an immediate access to the bloodstream. For the same properties that make this chemical an excellent machine solvent, allow it easy access to the blood system. Users of nail polish remover are familiar with that little chilly sensation at the cuticle where the liquid comes in contact. That is the skin's absorption of the compound. Small levels of absorption can be broken down by the liver and actually used to make energy for normal bodily functions. However, breathing high levels or even small levels over a long period of time can cause nose, throat, lung, and eye irritation, increased pulse rate, nausea, vomiting, and a shortening of the menstrual cycle. Health effects from long-term exposure known from animal studies involve kidney, liver, and nerve damage increased birth defects, and lower ability to reproduce, primarily in males only. Now, on the night that I discovered the familiar odor connecting nail polish remover with the paint sludge, it was my mother, Tessie, who told me about the wonders of acetone. She said it could cut through anything. My dad, Walt, 
He told her that it was the best solvent for cleaning out spray paint guns. Yes, the same mechanism that my Uncle Dutchie had competed with in his youth at the Hilburn Ironworks. Walt said that ultimately paint gums up in the jets of the spray guns and blowing acetone through them softens the gummy paint and cleans it out. This leaves you with a paint acetone slurry that the steads at the old paint shop used to bury in the ground. In a similar fashion, but on a much larger scale, acetone was used in the industrial shops to cut through paint buildup in the spray equipment, like at Ford Motor Company. The average amount of paint product that actually adheres to the automobile is only about 10% of what is sprayed out of the guns, leaving the rest to overspray across the floor and wash into the drain traps. This thickening mixture of lead, plastic, and VOCs, an industrial cocktail, helped along by the acetone, was then loaded into 55-gallon drums slated for dumping in the watershed. My mom dabbed a drop of nail polish remover on my finger, and I immediately felt that chilly sensation as it contacted my cuticle. She said, isn't that amazing? Ah. <sighs> The only thorough analysis of the compounds in the Ford Motor Company paint sludge on record was completed at the bequest of attorney Stephen Scheller on behalf of the Ramapo-Lenape Nation, residing in the Ringwood Mines landfill site. This was completed in cooperation with the Federal Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. That's what we call the ATSDR. A copy of this report can be accessed through the New Jersey Department of Health and Senior Services and was made available through the public comment period from May 1st through July 3rd of 2006. The report confirms that the chemicals listed are all to be found in the sludge, along with percentages of cadmium, copper, mercury, and thallium. While the summary in this report is a cautious, if not conservative, analysis of potential ongoing exposure, it acknowledges that sludge deposits in contaminated soil and sediment at the very site are, quote, potential pathways identified with past inhalation of ambient air and past and current ingestation of biota and groundwater from off-site potable wells, end quote. In assessing health impacts, the report acknowledges that exposures associated with antimony and lead in paint sludge arsenic in surface water, and lead in soil and surface water may have resulted in non-cancer adverse effects in children and adults. Further potential health hazards are considered as a possibility as a result of additive or interactive effects of chemical mixtures. But the speculation is just that, and not considered credible for classification. In respect to lead and antimony exposure, the report notes that the pre-1978 housing may also contribute to lead buildup. In respect to arsenic exposure, the report indicated that arsenic may also be found in the area as a remnant of mine tailings and further study would be necessary. Further study would be necessary. Hang on to that thought for a minute. While playing down the cancer incidents for the period of 1979 through 2002, indicating that overall cancer was not elevated, something the Ramapo community contests, the report did acknowledge other health concerns that residents had that were related to exposures. These included respiratory diseases, reproductive and developmental effects, neurological disorders, heart diseases, skin rashes, eye irritation, anemia, and diabetes. The chemical cocktail 
that makes up Ford Motor Company paint sludge is a 20th century wonder, a new compound that in some ways defies reason for even the VOCs that ought to have long ago dissipated when exposed to the air remain trapped inside the hardened sludge, waiting to release gas as much as 50 years later. The people who have been in the front line of exposure are primarily members of the Ramapo-Lunape community on account of their close proximity to the land where much of the sludge dumping has occurred. The stories of illness, loss, and recovery indicate many of the symptoms cited above, and they are the legacy of a criminal act, although it could be argued no intentional crime was ever committed. Think about that. That thought bears repeating. No intentional crime was ever committed. First, it must be addressed as to whether or not the burying of lead-based paint material in a watershed is in fact a crime? And if the answer is yes, then intentionality becomes the issue. Does the intention to bury waste equate to the responsibility for the pollution? While the answer may seem to be obvious to many, the burying of waste has long been a practice in this society, with waste management landfills dotting the map. Publicly, Ford has long held that the paint is not toxic but merely a low-level hazard, and that any remedial work would be purely cosmetic, that is, cleaning up an unsightly pollution. In other words, picking up what was visible. At the end of the stakeholders' meeting that I had attended, the private meeting, the Ford representative stated that the Torn Valley was not on their radar. He said that Ringwood, New Jersey, was an issue primarily because of the close proximity of residents to the dumping, and that in Torn Valley this was not the case. With few residencies anywhere near the sludge sites in the valley, Ford dismissed any call for cleanup in the watershed. This reasoning, of course, follows the idea that the cleanup work was purely of a cosmetic nature. But United Waters representative, in the same meaning, indicated that the idea of migrating lead paint in the groundwater was a ticking time bomb in respect to the wellheads and the base of the valley. Regardless, Ford's rep shrugged he said to us, as we all stood to leave, that we were not to expect to see them back in Torn. Outside, in the parking lot, Jeff Welch looked up at the eastern face of Torn Mountain. The noon sun offered a unique full-face view of the granite outcrop. He paused to take a picture, and I looked up at the high point, an historic site where once George Washington posted men to watch for the British ships sailing into New York Harbor 40 miles away. This is the same torn mountain ridge that speaks of a fabled iron master cursed by a shape-shifting salamander. I asked Jeff what stories children a hundred years from now would tell of our time. He turned as we walked back to the car and he said, They'll remember us for the paint sludge we left behind. Well, we'll learn more about that next week. Sure, words were never spoken. I, I, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, 50 years from now, when the planet's really getting hot and the, you know, the the uh, coastlines are being swallowed up by you know rising waters and everything. Will our children see us as ignorant fools that got us into this mess, or will they look at us with real and true anger and just say? 
God damn it, they knew this was going to happen. Why didn't they do something? They, they, you know, I, I, well, they see us as criminals. Uh, yeah, I'm haunted. I'm haunted as by you that. Say. You know, I, I really am because I, I mean, I try. Obviously, I'm. You know, I try to be on the enlightened side of all of this, and and uh, but I don't know. could I do more? <laughs> what else can I do? For example, we talked about acetone, right, and its effect on. I mean, why aren't we? saying, no, you can't make this anymore. We're not supposed to use this anymore. Do you know you can buy it through the mail? You can order on Amazon a gallon of acetone. Wow. wow. How do they ship that? Wrapped I've, up in a package with styrofoam around the gallon. But I mean, you can buy it at yeah. Lowe's or Home Depot. Sure. You can buy a gallon. But you can also buy it through the mail. I used to sell it all the time. Yeah. Same, same as Roundup. You know? Yeah. Same as Roundup. Yeah, you can just Well, I worked at a stuff. nursery, too. So I've worked at a nursery and in the building industry. And with both, we had chemicals. You used to have to get those, print them up, and give them to the customer with the product. That was one good thing the DEC did, I guess, was to, first, they were just handing it out. We were just handing fertilizers out, pesticides out, like nothing. And then they started to get more strict with it. But they didn't stop selling anything. In fact... Still haven't. I know there's So the warning selling. sheet was just sort of a, to placate so they, the regulators and allow yeah. you to continue to... And I think it. it also made... It said, okay, we're telling them what is bad about this product, so... And we're leaving it up to them now, to poison themselves, if and that's we're, what yeah. they want. Yes, yeah, so, so we're not criminals. Right. Although, although one must say that... Um, those sheets are very difficult to read. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, they are absolutely... It's fine print. They're not explained. The average, the average reader... I mean, we'll just print one up. Even, see. even when I look at them, yeah, I don't understand everything in them. But oh, I, yeah. I, I would hand them out, and nobody's yeah. reading them. Okay. That's their way of saying we're not doing anything with malicious intent. We're we're giving you the information. Good luck, and uh, you know it's the cost of doing business. All right, so let let's talk for a moment, if we can, about if it's even possible to talk about this about the alternative. Okay, the alternative to astroturf. Is dirt. What is the alternative to using plasticizers? Is there an alternative? I don't know. I, I, I don't. I haven't really studied that. I, I, when when we fought herbicides, we did come up with alternatives. We discussed alternatives, and they re, and, and many were, were quite good, although they required things that we didn't always have. For example, a workforce to manually pull weeds from a lake, a skilled workforce. Right. It could exist. And, and in fact, they do exist in Vermont and in the Adirondacks. And there are small groups of young people that, are, that have the diving skills and uh, put, manually pull a lake, and they do it. And, and that's cost competitive with the, with the chemical treatment, but we don't have a labor force in, around here to do those things. Young people could do it, but they would have to um, take the initiative, form a organization, Sell their sell to the lake managers, which is usually homeowners associations, that they can do this and it's safer and would co- not cost more money than the chemical treatment. It's very hard to do it. And it also seems that, like everything, we wait for the emergency. We wait for the accident to happen to make a correction, to fix, to do anything. And we wait for the problem to be seen. We wait for people to start dropping dead. And then we do well, something yeah. about it. In the case of the chemicals in the lake, there is not going to be, unless there is some kind of weird manic mechanical see, failure, yeah. there's not going to be a, an accident to happen. It just it happens year after year. Now, there are 
alternatives. I've seen this happen a lot in the lake battles. Sometimes people say, manual labor won't do it because it costs too much money. We, we don't have the skill. And, the, and they sometimes cite examples to prove it. But the examples they cite to prove it really typically involve volunteers don't know, that aren't trained walking around the marginal lake trying to pull some weeds and sure, they, that's not going to get the job done. And they probably and, only and, do that. More, they did that in, 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 when we fought herbicides in the uh, forests, and we had brush-pulling teams that were chainsaw-skilled, and we cut the brush or use hand-pulling tools to pull it. They set an example in which they, it, it was published in Josephine County in southern Oregon. People that were given time off from prison to mm. go out in the woods and cut the brush. Mm. And then they said afterwards, you know, it took... Um, so many hours, it was like $460 an acre to do this, and chemicals would be cheaper than that. But meanwhile, people that knew what they were doing could have done it from $80 an acre and made good money. Mm. But, you know, having prisoners who don't know what they're doing yeah. and, and who are well, not motivated because, in fact, because they're in prison, their motivation right. is to go as slow as possible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're indentured, so they get to stay outside longer. They want to stay outside. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Also, when they do a test like that with either volunteers or prisoners or whoever come in and they start pulling weeds, it's usually once a summer. Um, and so, of course, it's not going to work if you had a dedicated group that literally was getting paid to do this. That's right. That, that not only would the cost go down, but the su success rate would go up. Absolutely, absolutely. So. But it does require workers that, that become skilled which may take six months. It may take some period of time, just like tree planting requires some time to do it. And I did. there were skilled workers that did this in the Adirondacks, where there were some areas where they were not allowed to use the chemicals. And um, they, they, had, they had crews of four people. One was in a boat above, a couple of divers down below, because it isn't just enough to pull the weeds right. where it's three feet deep along the edge of the shore. You've got right. to get down to where it's 10 feet and, and get them there, too which the volunteers aren't going to do. Yeah. But skilled workers can mm. do it and, and can do it competitively. But we need to develop the workforce. It sounds to me like there, there has to be some method of incentivizing this work, obviously through money or some other way. Money seems to be the driving factor in the negative, so it would have to be, I guess... Well, um, you know, it kind of reminds me, this discussion reminds me of the leaf blowing as opposed to the raking scenario. And of course, Tommy can tell us all about NIAC and banning yep. of leaf blowers over exactly. periods of time. Uh, the, the thing about that is, yes, landscapers will tell you, well, with leaf blowing, we're obviously more efficient because we're doing it quicker and we can do more lawns in a given time. We can cut more lawns or we could do more uh, leaf accumulation in a shorter period of time so we can do more lawns per week, blah, blah, blah. And it gets down to quality of life. Leaf blowing is horrible for people with allergies it's terrible in terms of what it, it emits into the air and remains in the air for quite a long time afterwards it's spreading all kinds of other things that we're not even taking into account for and it's noisy as hell that's what the, the naya complaint right. was about and and the other thing is again you're using well i was going to say you're using a little gas driven machine but you can also get the rechargeable one the battery powered yeah, one there are electric ones there are electric they are actually 
But but uh, getting them to be used in Nyack, people were thing. using them to blow the snow off of their the, their porches and sidewalks. So any excuse to get out there with this loud, obnoxious machine, I don't blame the people of Nyack for raising hell about it. Yes, because it's a quality of life thing. You know, everybody doesn't have one hour a week where they all use their leaf blowers and get it over with. So you, I lived in Nyack. You heard it all the it time, even in the winter. They have banned the. Fuel, you know, the combustion. The little single piston you know, thing. Blower, except they're letting them do it for cleanups in the spring and cleanups in the fall. And I think the year after, they want it totally banned. But in place, you can use an electric battery-operated blower. Uh, so you'll still have that noise. I have one now because mm-hmm. we switched. Mm-hmm. Um, but not nearly as much noise. It's, not, it's, not, it's as not as noisy. No, it's better. It's better. It's much better. Uh, and actually, it works very well. But it's um, we we just switched everything, electric lawnmower, everything now. So okay, so I've I've been very quiet for the last few minutes because <laughs> I have to I have to make an admission of guilt here. I I do use lawn machines now. I my lawn's you know a little bit bigger, and it's in a neighborhood where the houses are further apart, backs up to woods, you know, so that absorbs some of the sound. But what about all the God only knows what I'm pumping into the air. I mow with a tractor. I blow with a leaf blower, a motor, uh, a combustion-powered leaf blower. And spent two full days cleaning off the concrete deck behind my house of all the uh, you know mildew and everything else. And it does a phenomenal job. Makes it almost look like it's brand new. But for two full days, I'm running that sucker. And uh, since I'm... And this is my confession. I am uh, fertilizing my lawn mm. using Eco Lawn, which is supposed to be ecologically sound uh, fertilizers that they're using. That's their whole. That's their brand. Where Eco Lawn is it even possible to to fertilize with a with something that's not harmful? I, I you know something natural. I I, I suspect it, but that it's probably. Legit, whatever is an eco lawn. I, I don't know the product. I hope so. But I'm I, gonna I, find I, be, out I believe it's probably you know much less toxic. You know, I, again, I don't know, but I suspect it's okay. okay I, I, t- I tend to to buy those things and trust that they're. I'm going to play what you just said, Doctor Harwitz. I'm going to play it to my wife <laughs> because she's she's a purist. She's like, why are we having this stuff dumped on our lawns? We have a well for God's sakes, and I'm like, the well is 460 feet below the ground, Karen. It'll never get down. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. So who's right? Well, I, mean, get, I don't know. You have to look at the know. label for Ecolon. I don't know the product. Yeah. yeah. We'll one have day, to find out. One day you should bring uh, our niece, Maggie Vetter, here, who does everything organically. She right. grows plants. She, it's like going into a, a holistic farm. It, it's just really beautiful what she does. And she uses things like fertilizers, things, everything's natural. So the bug killing takes longer, it's harder, it's more difficult. But she does it because she wants her kids to eat food that doesn't have these chemicals in it. You see, so. you see, back in Hilburn, Walt had a natural fertilizer because we had a horse. There you go. We shoveled the manure alongside <laughs> the wall. We turned it over once in a while. And then adding some leaves, adding some other stuff in it, was a, it was a good fertile uh, mix. The bigger pieces he gave to friends who had gardens. 
Um, sometimes if, when there was too much, he just threw it over the throughway fence and we produced a beautiful, almost prehistoric poison <laughs> ivy crop on the other side of the fence. <laughs> but he felt that was good for the throughway. And, uh, being fed and, by carbon. Yeah, being fed by carbon because uh, poison ivy loves uh, carbon. It'll grow really rich. Uh, that's why it grows so well by the highways. Absolutely. But he raked small amounts of manure across the yard. And, oh, Tessie just loved that because, you know, then on a warm day, the yard smelled like horse shit. But yes. our yard was fine. He only did it once in the spring, and the yard was fine. Anne, who who's really has it, we have a very lush and beautiful garden club. For the first time in 40 years, twisted our arms and, and, insisted, Oop, and insisted that Anne open our garden to, to the club's tour, which is in July, July 6th or something. Uh-huh. Nice. She's reluctant to agree to do it. It's a big, beautiful garden. Uh, not... It's not growing crops because we're away a lot of the time. It's just pond and stream and milkweed beds and That's birch beautiful. trees and lawns. All It's very beautiful to look at and be in. But she doesn't um, use any fertilizer at all. Wow. Not you, all. You, we, get, we get plenty of um, natural fertilizers from the trees above. There's birches that drop leaves. There's two large trees nearby that dump enormous amounts of needles every fall and winter that cover everything. It's amazing how many billions, really billions of needles get dropped by the larches. Joe, you're addicted you're, to chemicals. You're getting yeah. me in trouble, Doc. <laughs> you're addicted. Also, I would You have say, a problem, Joe. I know. <laughs> I mean, the earth did very well by itself before the chemicals were here. It was amazing. How did it survive? You know, That's what I, know, I don't know. I don't know. came along. How did, how did <laughs> humans survive before these chemicals we found uh, that worked quicker. Well, first of all, human you know, lifespan so. was shorter, so we, we, right. we but it, but it was rich, that. but it was shorter. <laughs> it was, that was a given. I mean, at the time of Christ, lifespan was about thirty some years. Yeah. So it, but it's it's increased, but we've also countered that by poisoning ourselves right. a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, quality of life with these poisons. Yeah, because, yeah, we live longer, but we feel worse with some difficulty. So. <laughs> exactly. I mean, Karen's even saying now, you know, we have that sort of lower area that goes up to the woods. She's like, let's let's plant clover down there. Then you don't have to cut it as often. Oh, I love Karen. That's, That's just the right idea. thing to do. That's so idea. correct. She's a round cover. She's not that that nice there. red clover. You can eat that. It's delicious. You can she, eat clover. It's she was great. Uh, vitamin C. She was raised on uh, basically a, a small little five acre farm type land in Vermont. Yeah. You know, yeah. so she's, I'm the city boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that yeah. she's slowly converting little by little. Uh, when we talk about this, though, what are some of the remedies? Are there remedies outside of individual action, which certainly can help, trying to curtail usage of, of unregulated, you know, or poorly created fertilizers, things like this, acetone, everything else? I, I think, I think, and Howard, I, I think, Probably you and I are in agreement on this. We're not going to rid ourselves of these chemicals that have become so entrenched in our economy. But I think that we can become intelligent about surviving the exposure to these chemicals. It's like you get a new shower curtain, hang it up outside for a few days before you bring it inside because it needs to off gas. All these things need to off gas. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean it's completely fixed because you're throwing hot water on it in a shower and so forth. But it does mean that you're being sensitive to the fact that there are exposures that you're part of and just becoming, like you said, what can you do about plasticizer? It's in blood tubes, you know, and, and it is proven to be the best 
tubing for plasma ever made. So, I mean, there are some things we're not going to completely get rid of, but oh, we yeah. can certainly try to trim down the levels of exposure. Yes, and I do think that um, ultimately education is, is the answer and that you can do a lot of education with great effort. I've been involved in my life in about the last 50 years with, I'd say, maybe um, 10 or so specific big environmental battles. And I would say that we won 50, 60%. Not all, but probably a little more than half. But it took hundreds of hours of effort, huge effort to do it. The victories are not always permanent. Greenwood Lake, we beat back herbicides with a thousand hours of, of labor. But 20 years later, the herbicides are back in Greenwood Lake. And I don't have the energy to... to put a thousand hours in again. Plus the politics have changed. There's a very young conservative uh, managers there that are to believe in the chemicals. And there would be no, in fact, people who didn't know me ridiculed what happened 20 years before, though they didn't understand it. Oh, but these environmental weirdos came out in 20 years and stopped us from doing this. And now we need to do it. But I do believe you can, you can win a lot of these battles, like we did win the artificial turf at Warwick, and people in Warwick did stop the uranium mine. There's been a bunch of the things that we've won, but it took a lot of effort. When you say that, I, uh, and you were talking about the different administrations that come in and what happens to these environmental protection agencies when these uh, when a more conservative base comes in, I see a lot of denial of science and of fact when a more conservative base comes in, and I think most of that, if they were honest with themselves, comes from convenience. It's inconvenient not to use these herbicides. It's inconvenient. It, it's just so convenient just to kill it with this spray. And I so. think it's wor- I think it's it's worse than that. I don't I think it's medic. I just think that yeah. that the people, just like right wing judges, you know, there's a factory of right wing thinkers that when right wing administrations get into power. They can put them in these positions. Most of the people working in the, the, the scientists working in the agency are idealistic. They, they want to do the right thing. Right. They're, they're limited by, by what they can do because their they, leaders. They, they can't just write their own reports and not be edited. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, and, you know, it, and you could see that the people, the scientists were, were definitely frustrated during that Reagan period and I'm sure has happened again with period. Trump times too. Yeah. He was outwardly weakening the environmental protection agency and taking uh, making it so they could really not make an impact anyway Uh, i don't know what's happened since then but um it really showed the difference between leadership more and more they can report on dangers but they don't have any uh teeth anymore they're basically taking these agencies and and rendering them pretty much uh a reporting yeah. device. Yeah, yeah the EPA is a it. hollow shell at yeah. this point. Well, listen, we have, we've, re- I think we're getting into the heart of the matter now, and we're getting into some of the things, hopefully, that we can start at least thinking about ourselves personally that maybe we can do to try to make the situation a little bit better. You may not be able to change the world, but you can keep the world from changing you because we have to get to remedy. We have to get the solution here. Somehow we have to. We have a whole system of leadership right now for whom conflict and division is much more valuable and important than solution. And that's why we're so jammed up. So we have to figure out a way to pull it together because 
Together, we have power. Divided, uh, we can't do a damn thing, and they've got all the power. The people that, uh, that are profiting off of our discontent. With that, I shall wrap it up for this week. Thank you so much, Dr. Chuck, and thank you so much, Dr. Horowitz. We really do appreciate this. This is really, uh, I think it brings a whole other level of value to what we're trying to do here. So thank you so much for being a part of this. We really appreciate it. Goodbye, folks. We'll see you next week with some more Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. See you next week. Wait a minute. Stop the presses. Hold it right here. After we recorded our last couple of shows with Dr. Horowitz, he asked if he could read some poetry that he had written. You could call this geographic poetry. You could call this environmental poetry. I just call it beautiful. It's very moving, very touching. And so as a special treat, I'm going to add one poem that he wrote at the end of this week's show. And I'm going to add another poem that he wrote at the end of next week's show. And I think you'll agree, this is a very special guy. So I'm going to turn it over right now to Dr. Howard Horowitz. And I'll let him do his own introduction. Dr. Horowitz, take it away. Okay. I think I'm going to read one that, that I wrote. I've written a lot just recently. But this, this one that I wrote long ago may be, may be a good one because it's one that you all know very well. You know the place very well. The Rampo River near Hilburn. So this, this one is, is one that, that relates to some things that you've been talking about. The Rampo River near Hilburn. Most of us drive by with eyes on the road. Some ride the train north or south. The few people who walk down to the river may see reflections dancing on the smooth white underside of huge leaning sycamore. Natural beauty still gives joy to some who live here, but the sublime pastoral scenes that inspired the Hudson River School, looking at tranquil waters and peaceful meadows below the rugged cliffs of Torn Mountain, can be found today only in their paintings. Ramapo Pass is a fault zone. Ancient metamorphic and younger sedimentary bedrock pull in different directions and rub raw. Long periods of calm may be broken by sudden shakeups. The place has always been sacred and strategic. Old rock shelters and stone circles, Pearson's Iron Foundry, General Washington's Overlook, and the Erie Railroad. In the mid-1950s, the New York Thruway blasted and bulldozed a wide swath through the graceful shoulders of Ramapo Pass and built a loud, accident-prone traffic corridor of concrete walls and overpasses. Industrial zoning, absence of vision, and mob influence spawned a landfill that was capped to keep leachate from reaching wells. Had he been still alive, Jasper Cropsey would have died of a broken heart. The past remains embedded in rocks and in old place names such as Hoofenkopf Mountain, where sacred places cradle rock and split rock. Unpaved forest roads cross the state line. Small cabins of the Ramapos were not far above the grand estates of the wealthy, such as Harmony Hall and Tornbrook. The mountains were a refuge from the hustle and noise down below. But a legacy of fear has lingered for generations around this geologic fault. As custodians of genetic purity, placed mountain people on the far side of the human fault. 
a deeply buried line of weakness, with potential for damage magnified by fractured vision. Children were removed from families. A cross was burned on Hoovenkopf Mountain by the Ku Klux Klan. Unequal schools were integrated with help from Thurgood Marshall. History is shocking, but resilience brings hope to the survivors of adversity and teaches respect to some inheritors of prosperity, including perhaps you and me. Today is bright, and we have an hour for lunch, so let's park the car and walk down to the river. Like the old sycamore securing the bank with strong sinewy roots, nature holds on. Rattlesnake, turtle, turkey, fox, and mink survive, and floodplain willows regrow. Crumbly clods of toxic Ford paint sludge erode in a gully near the water's edge, but not for much longer. Aroused residents have struggled to realize the dream of a cleanup above the aquifer. We sit on a flood-deposited log and watch the river flow, but do not escape the human flow, a steady reverberation of hum, whine, and vibration. So that's the Rampa River near Hillburn. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Yeah, that beautiful. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore, now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-764. 1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. 
You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. The MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.